It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, wow. out. it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker. And this week, we're presenting stories about what happens when our expectations don't match up with our reality. Story Collider's big travel season begins this week, and I'm about to set off on my first trip of the fall to hold one of our workshops in British Columbia. The last time I was in British Columbia for a workshop at the University of British Columbia last December, we were just wrapping up a really long day, and I was headed back to my Airbnb for a relaxing eight hours of additional work. And one of the scientists participating, Andrew Tritus, goes, so do you want to see our blue whale before you go? And I'm like, Andrew, that sounds really great, but I don't have time to go to the ocean and get in a boat and go see some blue whales. And he's like, no, it's actually just in the building next door. And I have no idea what he's talking about, because as I'm sure many of you are aware, the blue whale is like the largest animal to ever have existed. You don't just keep them in fish tanks in one of your university buildings. So I'm like, okay, whatever. You're the scientist, dude. It's probably going to be like a model he made or something is what I'm thinking. And then he takes us next door to this building called Beatty Biodiversity Museum. And holy shit, everybody. There's a massive blue whale skeleton suspended from the ceiling. It's like 85 feet long. And it's one of the coolest things that I've ever seen. And it turns out that Andrew like personally excavated it from Prince Edward Island with his team and transported it there. And he has all these amazing stories about it. So basically what I'm trying to say is when a scientist offers to show you a blue whale, always say yes, <laughs> even if you think you know what to expect. So with that in mind, I'll go ahead and introduce our first story today. Our first story is from Susanna Martinez-Conde and Stephen Magnick. They are married neuroscientists who work together, which I think sounds like a great concept for a primetime drama. You heard it here first. Their story was recorded in January 2018 at Caveat in New York City. The theme that night was communication. So a few years ago, we were writing our book about the neuroscience of magic and how magic tricks work in the brain. And we realized that we were very fascinated in the concept of psychics. Were psychics using the same kinds of techniques as magicians to actually get their customers to think they were actually reading their minds? Something that you need to understand about us is that as neuroscientists studying magic and illusions, we are hardcore skeptics. We didn't understand how it's possible for psychics to fool their customers into believing that they're witnessing actual supernatural feats. 
So we had to go there and see with our own eyes how it's done. So we registered at a psychic fair in Sedona, Arizona. Um, Sedona, to paranormal believers, is one of the 14 power points of the Earth, and it can ground the vibrational frequencies from extraterrestrial sources. So it was the perfect location for our little experiment. We didn't know what might be in store for us, so we had to do some advanced preparations. Through my reading, I learned that the psychic fair, there may be something on offer called psychometry, which is not quite as scientific as it sounds. <laughs> Basically, you bring an item with you that you feel specially connected to, and psychics will provide a reading of that object's history and significance. After some consideration, I settled on a little metal toy soldier that I found inside of a chocolate Kinder Egg <laughs> as a child in the 1980s. And I dug through our closets and pulled out some tie-dye t-shirts that were super groovy and far out, man, so we could blend in. <laughs> and with that, we were good to go. All right, so we drive up to Sedona. We lived in Phoenix at the time. We show up at Sedona to a resort hotel ballroom, which wasn't exactly the drumming circle in the desert we had imagined, but inside was basically set up like every other conference we'd ever been to. There were vendors around, around the room. There were lines of chairs. And that's where the similarities started to break because the vendors were selling things like potions and ointments that could cure your cancers and your wounds. And so um, you could get a psychic massage that would remove the negative frequencies from your body. Um, so so uh, we realized that when we, when we looked around, though, that it wasn't exactly the hippy-dippy uh, groovy set that we were expecting with free love and, and all of that. It was actually a bunch of older folks that, that could have fit in at a, at a mall anywhere in the U.S. We were literally the only two people in tie-dye in sight. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'd imagined incense-filled tents and marijuana clouds and, you know, all sorts of things like that. And what we ended up with was, was something all completely different because my attempts at camouflage completely failed. We decided to split ways so we wouldn't stand out so much. I, I went immediately to a table, a vendor who was selling psychic pictures. And I decided to go and get some psychic advice on whether I should go back to school or remain a stay-at-home mom, which I've actually never been. But I created this character, a different person from who I am in reality, because I was partly curious to see whether the psychics might see through the facade. The first couple of psychics that I went to advised that I went back to school but I figured that they were following very closely my body language and facial expressions. So when I nodded and smiled, they stayed the course, but if I frowned or acted confused, they would reverse themselves. They were basically telling me what they thought I wanted to hear. I went to a table uh, run by this guy named Elvis, and he had a box with a Polaroid camera in it, and inside the box was also a light source and a spinning color wheel. And he closed the box up and he took my picture with it and I got this Polaroid and I was watching it develop and it 
you know, developed into my face and I was surrounded by this beautiful rainbow colored aura with splotches of color all around. And Elvis explained to me that those splotches of color were my guardian angels and the energy I was giving off. And then he asked me for $33. When the third psychic told me that she saw success in my future, I tried my best puzzle expression so she quickly told me that she didn't mean professional success as such, but successful, meaningful, personal relationships. She advised that I stay home with the kids. So I had proven my point, but it didn't feel quite as satisfying as I had envisioned. Throughout this whole experience, I had started to have the irrational, bizarre feeling that I was being a bit unfair to the psychics. I headed to another table filled with all sorts of sundry items, flashlights and laser pointers, pendants, and these, I was told, had been quantum accelerated with crystals. So, so he, he also had uh, these, these bracelets, and I was explained that, that inside there was a, was a material that would actually uh, polarize and, and align all the protons in my body, which of course, if it was true, would turn me into a magnet. I was feeling a bit out of sorts after my psychic reading, so I decided to go check on Steve. And I, I was so relieved when Susanna showed up because I was getting, you know, kind of uh, fill, filled up to the brim with the pseudoscience. So I explained to Susanna that the gentleman at the quantum acceleration table had just explained to me that he had taken this quantum accelerated laser pointer and used it to remove the cysts from his wife's breasts. I literally could not think of any suitable reply to such a statement. <laughs> All I managed to do was turn around 180 degrees and convulse in silent laughter. She literally ran away. It was time to get my first psychometry reading on my little soldier. But I was a bit concerned that no psychic would take the exercise seriously if I told them that I found the soldier inside of a chocolate egg. So instead I said that I had found this object lodged between two planks of wood at my old rental apartment in Boston and that I felt a special connection to it. So I was starting to feel a little depressed. You know, we were writing this book on magic. We were working with magicians. We were going to Las Vegas and visiting them at their shows in casinos on the Strip. And one of the things we learned about these casinos is that the gamblers there, you know, they're not all the happy-go-lucky gambling crowd you might expect, that many of them actually were, were kind of worried and desperate to win, that you realize you were standing next to somebody who might be having the very worst day of their life at any given time. And so uh, we realized at the psychic fair that, that it, was, it was a similar feeling, that these people were having, feeling frantic and desperate themselves. And so, um, so this, this kind of led us to, to, to wonder, right? What was, what was it that they were feeling and, and why is it they were feeling this way? I handed the toy soldier for the first psychometric reading and waited to hear the verdict. The psychic told me that the reason I felt this strong connection to the soldier was because this soldier represented me in a prior life. It's you, 
back when you were Caesar, she told me. <laughs> Which frankly made me feel pretty good, <laughs> although I didn't believe a word of it. But throughout this experience, I found myself bizarrely of two minds, being intensely skeptical as it's my nature, but also wanting to know more. Then the psychic said, hold on, not Caesar himself, but one of his most trusted generals, which I still thought sounded pretty impressive. Until she said, wait a minute, uh, who was Caesar again? Was he some sort of king? <laughs> now, for the record, the soldier is a, 19, uh, sorry, a 1760s British infantryman with a musket on his shoulder. <laughs> The next psychic that I went to told me that this toy soldier was not an actual toy, but a chess piece from the 1940s that used to belong to this old gentleman named Aiken. And that the reason that I felt connected to it was because the soldier was from the same precise German town where I had lived my prior life as a scholarly maid. <laughs> In her current life, it may be true that I haven't quite been able to let go of that whole scullery maid thing. I don't even know what a scullery maid is. But the psychic did say that my life as a scullery maid had been mostly joyful. I had um, good friends and a husband who loved me. But I had had this one sorrow, and is that even though I had very much wanted to have children, I never got to have any. That's so sad, I told the psychic. And I must have left my face unguarded for a second or two, because she asked me, is this something that you're struggling with in this life? And I said, no, I have two little boys. But I didn't mention the two pregnancy losses between my first and my second child. And I realized right then and there what a comfort it would have been a few years prior to believe in the concept of this one life out of the many lives that came before and just as many lives that will come right after. So the, the attendees of this conference were clinging to the wispiest of false evidence. They were the ultimate consumers of false hope. That they were hoping that someone with authority would tell them that their cancer would go away, that their family and friends in the military would come home safe, that they would be reincarnated next time with a better life. Maybe they'd go from being a scullery maid to one of Caesar's generals. Um, and the, the psychics there, we realized, were in fact using the magic tricks that we thought they were using, but they were really taking advantage of these people to tell them what they wanted to hear. They were, um, how should I put this? Um, they were using their cognitive um, failures to their advantage. For one, I myself, as a staunch skeptic, was startled to, to find out, to find myself in a couple of there, but for the grace of God go I, moments, um, I realized that believing can be much easier than disbelieving and feel a whole lot better. And that's both the beauty and the danger of the stories that we tell ourselves. Exactly. And it, w of course, was all an illusion. And as we drove home, 
we were in a thoughtful mood. I mean, we were thinking about how the, the psychics were in fact using the magic tricks that we had imagined when we drove up there in the first place, and we remained just as skeptical of psychic phenomena as when we arrived. But we also felt a lot more sympathy for our fellow attendees at the conference, that in fact, um, we realized that they brought an important component to the psychic phenomenon, which is that they bring to the table part of the illusion, which is the need to believe. Thank you. Thank you. That was Susanna Martinez-Conde and Stephen Macknick. Susanna and Stephen are award-winning neuroscientists and professors at the State University of New York Downstate Medical Center. They are best known for their studies on perception, illusion, and attentional misdirection in stage magic. They produce the annual Best Illusion of the Year contest, now in its 13th edition, and are the authors of the international bestseller, Slights of Mind, What the Neuroscience of Magic Reveals About Our Everyday Deceptions. Their new book, Champions of Illusion, The Science Behind Mind-Boggling Images and Mystifying Brain Puzzles, is out now. Speaking of expectations, the Story Collider has some great expectations for our fall season this year, as we have more than 20 shows coming up all around the world between now and December. So look out for our regular shows in New York, Boston, D.C., Los Angeles, Atlanta, St. Louis, Vancouver, Toronto, and Wellington. But also look for us in places like Bar Harbor, Maine, Hartford, Connecticut, Ames, Iowa, Manchester, U.K., San Antonio, Texas, Berlin, Germany, Charleston, West Virginia, and Boise, Idaho, because we will be doing pop-up shows all over the place as part of our Story Collider Presents sponsorship program and our Story Collider on the Road pro bono show program, and we would love to see all of you there. So find out more at storycollider.org. Our next story today is from Africa Stewart. It was recorded in March 2018 at the Highland Ballroom in Atlanta as part of our show with this year's Atlanta Science Festival. So I have a story. It's full of love and and loss and, and magic and blood and guts and all of those things, but I can't tell it at you. I need to tell it to you, so if you would, please, uh, an imaginary cup full of your favorite thing. If you would have a sip. Okay, all right, now I can tell you a story. All right. Um, the beginning, okay, the beginning. We, we heard the c- commotion, we heard it before they called. It's a, it's a radio system, so it's... Maternity to OT, maternity to OT, please send doctor to maternity. Repeat, please send the doctor to maternity. So I knew it wasn't going to be good. So I go out of the OR and I see her blood on the ground and I know it's not good. But I was taught to run at it. So I run. I follow it. I hadn't been there long, but I I got the feeling it's time to run. Mind you, I'm an obstetrician, so blood on the ground, wailing in the distance, it's part of the job. But this wasn't a day at the office. This was my first mission with Doctors Without Borders. 
I, uh, I left my private practice when my baby girl and my oldest, my baby girl was born, my oldest was adopted, and the world was on fire. <laughs> um, I had a teenager all of a sudden and a newborn and a beautiful baby boy stuck in the middle. And I went. They called, and I went. House full of kids, a couple gallons of breast milk left in the freezer. I went to Sudan. This was the spring of 2011, so it's right before South was scheduled to secede from the North. So South Sudan wasn't a country yet. I went because they didn't know what was going to happen. Nobody did. A new international border changes everything. We thought there would be trauma and killings, but it turned out to be mommies and their kids. Because now they had to figure out what side of the line they were going to live on, and the hospital is on the other side. So this is a little village in east of Darfur. They called on Friday. I texted my husband, Babe, MSF called, can I go to Sudan? Question mark. <laughs> he texts me back, yo, autocorrect is bugging. What's up? <laughs> no, 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 I, I want to go to Sudan. Anywho, that was Friday. I left on Thursday. The village, if you're familiar with the area, a wheel is halfway between Wau and Nyla. If you're not familiar, it's the middle of ever-loving nowhere. It's, it's the middle of nowhere. There's not another surgeon for a thousand miles like in a circle. There's nobody. So I went because there was nobody. And... Um, it's first mission, so everything's new and scary and exciting and wonderful. Um, but now I have a job to do, because women walk for days to get to the hospital. So a delay in timing is crucial. It changes everything. So I am out of breath, heart racing when I get to maternity. And there's a patient on their cot. There's a bunch of people around her. I don't know who's who, but there's a lot happening. There's, there's anxiety and urgency. But I don't speak the language. I don't, I don't know three people in the whole country. And I just met them. I just, I've only been here a week. But I see one of the translators that, I, that I'd worked with before. And trying to figure out what's going on. She's bloody. She's got a bloody thing and her face is sore she's all but this language has clicks in it so I mean I can get, make my way I can say push don't push mommy sorry uh, congratulations in a lot of languages and a lot of dialects it's, it's part of the job but this language has clicks in it so the translator <laughs> The bullet struck her. And I was like, ooh, I don't know what that is. I don't, I know a lot of things that ain't one of them. The bullet struck her. 
So I look at the patient, because that's my natural reaction. Like, I'm used to being able to talk to my patient. Okay. He says, I'm going to work with him, right? We're going to work with you. He says, you know this one? And he does a, like a milking motion with his hands. I say, yes. He says, no, not this one. I speak now of the men cow. And he does the, the devil horns over his head. He has struck her. I'm like, is he trying to tell me that she didn't gore by a damn bull? And that's exactly <laughs> what I said aloud. Like, no dignified Dr. Stewart filter. Are you trying to tell me she got gored by a damn bull? Gored, that's the word. So he turns to the family and he says something to them. He does the devil horns again and he <laughs> lunges at them and they all click. It's a chorus of clicks. That's the word that we were missing. That's the word that he never learned on television when he was learning English. Gored by the men cow. <laughs> All right. Okay. So now, as you can imagine, for me, this is all hands on deck. Man your battle stations, batten down the hatches. God damn it, we going to the OR. It's about to get serious. She, are you, it's your, and the patient just quietly sort of moves her garments up. She has a 20-week baby bump and a hole in her. A big bleeding hole in her. So in my mind, I've just turned into Captain Dr. Africa Stewart. Damn it, I've got on a sparkly onesie. There's a little fan gently blowing my hair like Beyonce. A cape unfurls. We're going to the OR. That's how it is in my mind. Everyone has dreams. So me and my Beyonce fan, we're, we're going to the OR. The OR for me is home. It's where I grew up. My mom was a surgical tech, almost 45 years. So when our sitter failed, when school was closed, those administrative days that don't make any sense, I went to the OR. This was some time ago. This was before you had to fill out a waiver to take your kid to work. It was just, it wasn't like that. The doctor's lounge was for men. The nurse's lounge was for women, and both lounges had ashtrays. <laughs> and nobody thought it was weird for a little girl to be sitting in a cloud of secondhand smoke for hours. Nobody. <laughs> School's out. I was like, it's, just, it's okay. So this is where I feel most comfortable. This is where I feel like me. They, we're going to the OR, except nobody's moving. Nobody's running around. There's nothing stacked. You know, nothing's happening. And I'm like, oh, um, the translator's not good at what he's supposed to be doing. Because <laughs> I'm expecting when you step on an anthill, like, we should be running around. But they're not because they know something that I don't know. And I'm asking the translator, I'm making sure that he understands what 
I'm trying to say, because nobody's doing nothing. But they can't, because they know that here, families are in multi-generational homes. The decision maker is the oldest person in your family, and that's just the way it is. Culture's weird that way. It's hard to tell it when you're in, but it's obvious when you're out. Because I was raised on women's rights, come get it. Patient says what's her body, and we can get down if you want to. But that's not how it works here. She understands that she's got a hole in her, and I can fix it whenever she's ready. And I can't vouch for either of you while we wait. And I hate telling people that, because I feel like that's the biggest card I got. And if she don't bite, I have to do the things that OBs have to do sometimes. But she understands completely. I'm the one who doesn't understand. She would rather lose her baby and her own life than disrespect the thing that she built her whole self on, that love and the support that you can't get in the middle of a civil war. This is how it is here. That's why nobody understands that I'm wearing a sparkly damn onesie and I'm trying to get to the OR. So we wait. And I'll admit, I asked every translator in that building just to make sure that she understands what I understand. And she was as pleasant as pie each and every time. She said, no, we wait. And we do. And then comes the one, the one that we're waiting for, the one that can make the decision and do the thing. Mind you, this part of the world has a, a group of people that are very, very tall, and very, very dark-skinned. So when I tell you that I've been black all my life and I have never, ever seen that shade of black, like I've seen it with like a blue undertone and I've seen it with like a purpley undertone but I shit you not, her undertone is magic. Like, I don't, know, I don't know what that is. White hair and, you know, the duck that tall people do in order to enter a room? So the hospital was built by Westerners. They call them kawajadors. Kawajas are people who aren't from here. And it's comical to them that the doors are so short and wide <laughs> when... Everyone else is not built that way. So the one has to duck in order to come into labor and delivery. I've never seen anybody that old duck to enter a room. I've gotten used to my staff. Like, they're young, they're agile, but everybody's at least six feet tall. So getting used to, like, a 6'4 pregnant lady just, just waddling by, just, mm, just <laughs> handling it. It's like a... It's like, this is like giraffes giving birth everywhere. <laughs> it's beautiful and uh, entirely foreign to me. But the thing, so I've never seen this shade of black. I've never seen hair, never seen wrinkles so beautiful. Like the assemblage is, is just a, a package that I've never seen. And it had never occurred to me that the one we were waiting on was a woman. Damn it, I'm ashamed to tell you, but... It never crossed my mind until she 
ducked into labor and delivery. Regal would be in a hyperbole that you wouldn't believe. But it was regalish, but fragile and proud, if that word isn't offensive to her. Anywho, she looked at me, she looked at my staff, she said something to the translator, and the translator asked me, she wants to know if you will do the cutting. And I sort of nodded and bowed. I wasn't, I wasn't even sure what I was supposed to do. Um, she clicked. Just once. And then my emergency started. One click. Translator gets out an ink pad, because for the most part, Sudanese are subsistence farmers, cattle person. Uh, the surgical consent form is in French or English. So what we do is we fingerprint her. So this regal creature signed my surgical consent form with her fingerprint. And then we went to the OR. And mom and baby did okay. Yeah, the, the horn got through her abdominal wall but kind of grazed the top of her womb but baby was fine, and major organs and whatnot were manageable. Not, nothing a kid who was raised in the smoky OR couldn't handle, right? <laughs> but as I'm getting uh, of a certain season, getting closer to being one of the ones, I look back. I only saw her once more, and this was the wee hours of the next day. She was in the bed with my patient, like spooning her. And the staff said that she stayed up until the patient fell asleep. She hummed to her. And by the time I finished the rest of my morning rounds, the one was gone. The patient did well. I never saw the one again. But as I look forward to being a grandmother, of being the oldest one in my clan, not sure if I'm ready. Not sure if I made a magic yet. <laughs> but I have this richness, this, uh, this fullness of experience. Like when we go past a pasture, my kids moo. They moo with the cows every time. <laughs> but I look for the man cow. For no other reason than I'm curious to set eyes on the beast that struck her. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes me, I don't know, the contrast and the, the reflection that comes with it. Every time I tell this story to someone, there's, you know, there's always a man cow. There's always the patient. There's always me in some form or another, with a fan. <laughs> Wait a second, won't be uncomfortable. <laughs> See? <laughs> but I think about myself as a grandmother. I think of my grandmothers who are long past. And I look back and I remember, <laughs> neither one of them ever wore makeup. 
And I'm pretty sure it's because it's impossible. You cannot find a lightweight foundation if your undertone is magic. <laughs> you know what I mean? That was Africa Stewart. Africa attended Drexel University Medical School in Philadelphia, and in 1999, she completed a Master's of Business Administration with a concentration in strategic planning from the University of Pittsburgh's Katz School of Business. She then returned to Philadelphia to finish her medical training at Drexel. In 2000, she received a doctorate in medicine and began obstetrics and gynecology residency at Hahnemann University Hospital. Her career with MSF, or Doctors Without Borders, began in Sudan on June 2011. Africa has completed four surgical field missions and served as a guide for the Forced from Home exhibit in 2016. She continues to support women's health care locally and abroad with an emphasis on education and prevention. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and me, Aaron Barker, with help from our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Aaron Barker, that's me, as well as Paula Croxon, Kelly Vinyl, and Emma Yarborough, with assistance from Mesa Salida. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Caveat and the Highland Ballroom for hosting these shows and to our team of 22 awesome producers for making all of our shows this fall happen. Thanks for listening. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.